From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, it's Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Happy New Year. Today, we begin a series of segments, conversations, and shows that will come to you throughout 2024. We're calling it The Purple Ballot. And in this space across the next 12 months, our aim is to better inform you, the listener, about candidates, voting, contours of specific races, political spending, issues that are or are not taking shape on the campaign trail, impacts of gerrymandering, yes, I said the G word, how to best decipher polls, and likely so much more. Today, a wide-range view in our initial Purple Ballot episode. Topics in a moment. First, our guests. Lucille Sherman is a reporter at Axios Raleigh. Susan Roberts is a professor of political science at Davidson College. Michael Bitzer teaches politics and history at Catawba College. He's a professor there. And Stephen Fowler on the line from Atlanta. He is a political reporter at Georgia Public Broadcasting and will be covering politics here in 2024 for NPR. Welcome to all of you. Hi, Jeff. Good to be with you. Hey. Thank you. All right. We're going to start with a broad temperature check of sorts to kick us off. On the spectrum of excited to exasperated, where do you begin 2024 and American politics, closer to being excited about what lies ahead or already exasperated. Lucille Sherman. <laughs> oh, no, I get I get to go first. You do. Um, Just in brief. Excited, exasperated, or, or what are you closer to? I would say somewhere in the middle. Um, I lean uh, more exasperated, but just a little. Lean exasperated. This is like lean left in a, a you know a Missouri congressional district three. Professor Bitzer, where where are you right now? I think I'm on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, I'm I'm both excited for it to see how this history plays out, but exacerbated by the fact that this is going to be, if not again, another bitterly divided. Uh, election and potentially not help to solve the polarization in our American politics. Stephen, I would say also similarly, uh, exasper cited. Personally, I'm excited nice. like to that. be doing more 2024 coverage uh, beyond Georgia, working for NPR on the Washington desk, uh, but a little bit exasperated because Georgia, once again, is going to be the center of the political universe, and it seems like it's going to be 2020 for the fourth year in a row, uh, not just in Georgia, but with other states and potentially with a presidential rematch. The the statement of time is a flat circle. I'm not sure that's truer anywhere in American politics the last few years than Georgia, which is now in, in month 53 of the year 2020 as it <laughs> pertains to politics. Uh, Professor Roberts, excited, exasperated, uh, exasperated. What are you uh, as we as we barrel into 2024? I think I think exasperated because I think that uh, we've been here before. There's so much to, to chat about, and we're going to try to cover a swath of topics this hour, from the North Carolina gubernatorial race to the prospect of supermajorities in Raleigh, ballot access, how much does policy matter, uh, and then also what can be learned or not learned uh, from a state like Georgia, which has this you know long, deep conservative history, but also has these real moments uh, where Democrats have, have won and carried. And we, we remember a lot of us, I think, will remember what happened in 2020, uh, and they were so uh, influential. Uh, we're chatting about the year in the 2024 year in politics here on Due South. Um, I want to, I guess, deviate uh, and and chat about one other kind of broad topic and, and get y'all to weigh in on it just a little bit as we think about this year and where we are in American politics. And Professor Bitzer, I'm going to send this one your way first. Donald Trump swept in eight years ago, 
And it feels like it has really been a personality moment in politics, if not era. Where would you kind of size that up for us right now? Is policy going to be a player here in 2024 or is personality still carrying the day? I think personality, particularly on the Republican side, is still very much the dominant issue. You know, Donald Trump has basically remade the Republican Party in his image. And I think with his commanding lead in the primaries that we're going to see coming up here soon, I think the Republican Party is still very much bent to the will of Donald Trump. I think on the opposite side with the Democrats, they are much more geared towards policy uh, dynamics. And I think Joe Biden is kind of seeing the friction within that, within the coalition that is the Democratic Party. Uh, There are a variety of different perspectives. And I think policy tends to be more dominant on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. But certainly policy issues are going to be at the forefront. Uh, But, you know, personality, you know, our politics of personality has become the dominant theme, I think, in modern American politics nowadays. And Professor Roberts, do you anticipate that assessment, which I I don't fundamentally agree with in any way, uh, disagree with in any way? I agree with it in all the ways that Professor Bitzer laid out. But Professor Roberts, do you foresee any of what Professor Bitzer just laid out changing here in in 2024? Well, I think that um, we're going to look and see that we're less, I would offer, policy adjacent than we've ever been. you know, we can't be in denial that age is not going to be a factor. We clearly can't deny that, as Michael said, um, that Trump is not the, you know, the, the shadow of the Republican Party. Uh, Romney itself, himself said, I'm retiring because Republicans are now the party of Trump. And other people have said, Jeff Flake, when he retired, um, he doesn't know what the Republican Party stands for except to be angry. So I think I'm more personality a little than um, policy Although I think that, um, uh, you know, policy still matters, but it's not going to prove effective in reelecting Joe Biden. Professor Roberts, you mentioned Jeff Flake. I I can't help but think of Bob Corker, former uh, U.S. senator from Tennessee. There was Mark Sanford, uh, kind of shamed governor of South Carolina, who later became a member of Congress. And these were also uh, kind of anti-Trump folks who flanked Trump to which side I don't even know anymore, but they were they were dissenting voices against Trump within conservative circles. And lo and behold, none of them uh, are holding elected office uh, anymore. Let's stick with the Trump factor, the the Trump influence here for a moment. Stephen, set the scene for us, if you would, uh, in Georgia, I think in some southern states, Mississippi, Alabama, here in North Carolina, certainly with uh, the leading Republican gubernatorial candidate, Mark Robinson, very Trumpian, my word. Um, is is the Trump factor any less in Georgia as we think about southern politics, or is it just as strong where you sit? Well, I, I think yes and no. Um, when you look at Georgia's presidential election results in 2020, and when you look at the midterm results in 2022, Trump was a factor, but not necessarily in the way that he and other Republicans hoped it would be. And uh, I mean, there were persuadable voters, uh, voters that otherwise vote Republican down ballot that did not vote for Donald Trump in 2020 and did not vote for Trump aligned primary candidates in 2022 uh, because they did not like his policies. They did not like his personality, tying it back to your earlier question. And those people are still conservative and still Republican in their viewpoint, 
but Republican more than a Trump Republican. And there's enough of them, and there's enough of a concentrated block that in a state like Georgia, where 10,000 votes here, 10,000 votes there, make a difference that the Trump factor turned out and has been a negative for the Republican Party. And the state party apparatus has gone all in on Trump. And that has led to a little bit of conflict within the party. A lot of Trump loyalists have been installed at the precinct, county, district, and even uh, executive level of the state party. But at the same time, you didn't see Democrats capitalize on that in the midterm elections because the people running, Brian Kemp, the governor, Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, planted their flag as being an antithesis to Trump, but not being this uh, squishy moderate mm. or you know, still having these conservative bona fides. So the Trump factor weighs in in Georgia more so as how you can still be a Republican and not all in for Trump more than, you know, his shadow looming over everything. We are about 10 minutes into our program, kicking off the 2024 year in politics across North Carolina, the South and America. And already Stephen Fowler, public radio reporter on the line from Atlanta, has used the words exasperated and squishy. Squishy is one of my favorite words to use as it pertains to North Carolina politics. Also here with us for our conversation uh, are Professor Susan Roberts of Davidson College and Professor Michael Bitzer from Catawba College. Lucille Sherman, reporter with Axios, uh, is here with me in studio. Lucille covers the squishy nature of North Carolina politics. We're going to step aside here in a minute. But before we do that, Lucille, size up for me, tee up for me what you're most excited about covering here in 2024. Oh, man, I think I'm most looking forward to sort of how watching how the nationalization of politics plays out in North Carolina. We've sort of talked about that. We've primered that nicely here. But I think that I'm interested in watching, you know, how does Trump's influence play out here? It didn't play out in North Carolina sort of just like in Georgia, how Trump and his allies thought it would. Um, His endorsements didn't carry the weight that um, he thought they would or that we thought they would. Um, There are a couple races where that will matter here. Um, I'm just interested in seeing, like, it feels like this might be a different election in North Carolina. We have a a governor's race at the top of the ballot. Um, And I'm really excited to see sort of, like, how voters respond to that and how sort of voters respond to sort of the nationalization of politics here. That's Lucille Sherman, reporter with Axios Raleigh. She's uh, among our cast of characters helping us to synthesize and uh, get going, thinking about 2024 and all that it entails. Just two months till the primary here in North Carolina. There are 11 governor's races in the U.S. this year, but however, only one of them is in the South. And it's right here in North Carolina, where an open seat is open seat race, I should say, is underway. That's thanks to the expiring term of Democrat Roy Cooper. Five Democrats, three Republicans, two Libertarians, and a Green Party candidate uh, in the crowded primary field vying for various nominations. We're going to spend some time talking about that gubernatorial race on the other side. It is interesting that North Carolina has uh, gubernatorial and presidential elections that run congruently, and there's something very strange that has happened here in North Carolina more often than it has not happened across the last 50 years. We'll tell you about that on the other side as we continue to Tee up, preview, and think about the 2024 calendar of politics. This is Due South on North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. George 
Washington was first in war and first among our presidents. Next Adams, his vice president, as leader took up residence. The people turned to Jefferson because their cause he pleaded. James Madison and the British War of 1812 succeeded. Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. We're teeing up the 2024 political year with Lucille Sherman, reporter at Axios Raleigh here in studio. Susan Roberts, professor of political science at Davidson College. Michael Bitzer, professor of politics and history at Catawba College, as well as Stephen Fowler, political reporter previously at Georgia Public Radio, Georgia Public Broadcasting. He is covering the 2024 happenings for NPR. He's their newest Southern reporter. All right. A little electoral, historical, Carolina context for you as we frame up this significant political calendar. Since 1980, there have been 11 general elections. North Carolina, of course, runs gubernatorial elections congruently with presidential campaigns. And in these 11 general elections, North Carolinians have split their ballots frequently. In seven of these elections, voters have sent a Democrat to the executive mansion and backed the Republican vying for the White House. Through the years, this has resulted in voters supporting Jim Hunt and Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush and Mike Easley, and Donald Trump opposite Roy Cooper. That last one has happened twice. If you go back to 1972, voters here in North Carolina have split their tickets nine out of 14 times. Interestingly, not once has the split seen a Republican win the governorship and a Democrat carry the state at a federal level. I don't believe any state in the country has that kind of ticket-splitting history, uh, at least that that North Carolina boasts. Professor Bitzer, remind us, where does this ticket-splitting come from? It comes from uh, North Carolina's unique political history. Uh, Much like with the rest of the South, uh, the South went through a realigning of their partisan uh, perspective back in the 1950s from the beginning of the 1900s. It was the solid Democratic South. But as the National Democratic Party moved more towards the left, the South left its historic Democratic base and moved to the Republican Party. That was an anathema uh, previously because uh, it was the party of Lincoln and civil rights for African-Americans. Where I think North Carolina is unique in Southern politics is that very fact that you talked about, that North Carolinians are very willing to split their tickets. But I think, as Lucille mentioned in the previous segment, the nationalization effect has had a real impact here in North Carolina. Just think about 2004, back 20 years ago, two decades Mike Easley and George W. Bush both won their respective offices, but the percentages were huge. George W. Bush won by 13 percentage points. Mike Easley, Democrat, won by 13 percentage points. So that's a swing of 26 points. Now we have Donald Trump and Roy Cooper winning, but it's only by three or four percentage point swing. And so I think the nationalization effect starting in 08 and has really solidified and calcified here in North Carolina as a much with the the nation as a whole. I think what we're dealing with in North Carolina politics are margins of victory within the margins of error error of polls. So the exacerbated, you know, sense of trying to predict North Carolina politics 
is very much you're talking about a three to four point difference for most of these offices. Anybody who wins by five, consider that a landslide in today's electoral Hmm. dynamics. Living within the margin of error for sure. Professor Roberts, do you have, I don't know, a finger on the pulse, so to speak, uh, about whether another ticket split this year feels feels likely possible or uh, maybe is is uh, you know becoming out of reach well i think one of the things to mention is um you know ticket splitting who's going to split their tickets is it going to be democrats or republicans or is it going to to really turn on what uh michael chris cooper and whitney ross Mar- Mar- monzo have we've talked about the unmoored voter the independent voter about roughly uh, a little more than a third of the voters in North Carolina. And will they be the ones that split their ticket based on, and here I think it might be more the policy preference and a little bit not voting uh, for Trump, but I think that that could be the key to increased ticket splitting. And you also have um, a huge percentage of um, North Carolinians today uh, who were born outside of North Carolina. And that might uh, contribute a little bit to the the willingness uh, to split a ticket. But I think we we need to, the whole way through what we talk about is distinguish between a midterm election, 2022 and 2024. And especially as I'll talk about in terms of the abortion issue later on. But I think it might, you know, the key might be in some of the increased numbers of unmoored, independent, unaffiliated voters in North Carolina. Do South, WUNC, this is our initial purple ballot episode. We're going to get into all sorts of uh, political conversations and analysis here uh, as we barrel toward a primary and then uh, the general election. What races deserve more attention from us and what questions that you have can we try to answer or provide additional context on? Please send us an email, south at wunc.org. I'm on the uh, formerly known as Twitter, at J underscore T-I-B-S. Stephen Fowler is on the line from Atlanta. No recent ticket splitting that I can think of in Georgia, but you use the word squishy, and maybe you just correct me on the fly here. Tell me about ticket splitting and or the nature of the division of government and remind us uh, where kind of the fault lines are in Georgia. Well, yeah, you actually go back and uh, it's it's hard to keep track of them all because it feels like Georgia has been consistently voting every other month for the past few years. But look <laughs> to the 2022 midterms where Raphael Warnock, the Democratic U.S. senator, was on the ballot and Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, both on the ballot, both won, although Warnock won in a runoff because Georgia has a right. unique uh, runoff situation. But that's a very good distillation of a couple different things here. You know, much of the messaging heading into the midterms from Brian Kemp and from Republicans in the state was look at how great Georgia's economy is. Look at how great Republican leadership has been for the past two decades. Look at all the job growth and record budget surpluses and everything. And look at how great that is. Now, in the Senate race, uh, Herschel Walker, the former football star who was the Republican nominee in a landslide, His messaging of look at how bad the economy is and it's Raphael Warnock and Joe Biden's fault didn't resonate the same way because you have voters in Georgia sitting on their uh, kitchen tables, sitting at their front porch, looking and seeing how personally great their economy was. 
and thanking Brian Kemp for it. And that nationalization and the national, the economy's doing terrible, jobs are terrible, everything's terrible, just didn't resonate the same way. And back to the earlier conversation about the Trump effect, Herschel Walker very closely aligned to Donald Trump. Trump encouraged him to run. Uh, Herschel Walker ran away with it, pun slightly intended, in the primary because of Trump's support and because of his popularity as a former University of Georgia football player. But there was this contrast of those voters, those squishy voters in Atlanta's northern suburbs, that more voted against Herschel Walker than for Raphael Warnock. So you had this scenario where Georgia voted for a Democratic U.S. senator and a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, so on and so forth, uh, that is an artifact of the ticket splitting in the Trump era, where sometimes it's about where you fall on that line for or against Donald Trump more than the actual policies or the actual uh, bona fides of the candidates. Stephen Fowler, you are talking about uh, recent Senate races in Georgia. I just want to size up for our audience the Senate races on the ballot here in 2024. There are 33 across the country. Uh, Interestingly, in 23 of the 33 U.S. Senate races this year, the Democrats are playing defense. Uh, They hold the seat presently. Not all of those 23 Democrats, I I don't believe, are running for reelection, but uh, it's the Democrats to lose, so to speak. Among Southern Senate races, only four, Tennessee, Mississippi, Florida, and Texas, there uh, are not any Senate races in either North Carolina uh, nor Georgia. And those four states, Tennessee, Mississippi, Florida, and Texas, are all presently held uh, by a Republican. I want to turn back to Georgia and I don't know if it's a shift or not, and that's where I'm going to seek your analysis here in a moment, Stephen, as we think about the, the wins by John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, uh, President Biden, uh, then the candidate carries the state in 2020. And there was this very narrow shift. And I can't help but think a little bit about North Carolina in 2008, when North Carolina went blue. President Obama carried the state. Bev Perdue was uh, the governor-elect. Kay Hagan won a U.S. Senate seat. But that was really an anomaly for North Carolina. The last presidential candidate, last Democratic presidential candidate to carry North Carolina outside of Barack Obama was Georgia's own Jimmy Carter uh, 48 years ago. So I'm wondering about the nature of Georgia politics and if it feels more like an anomaly to you, Stephen, uh, what happened in 2020 to adding on 2022 Warnock's victory, uh, or if this is more a sign of shifting sands shifting landscape a la Virginia and the shift we've seen uh, to the left for the most part across the last decade? Well, I think the last decade or so of American politics has been an anomaly since Donald Trump has entered the scene, like Professor Bitzer mentioned, that, you know, there are generations of younger voters that their entire time they've been eligible to vote. The Republican presidential candidate nominee is Donald Trump. And that's their only experience with presidential politics is Donald Trump and Joe Biden, which is an anomaly in and of itself. And I think it's hard to tell what the 
actual nitty gritty realignment may be with you know, electoral results here, electoral results there. But Georgia and North Carolina are very good examples of this broader cultural and economic realignment that's taken place over the last decade of bringing in a diverse range of voters and a diverse range of jobs and being the tip of the spear of the shifting populational changes in the country. And so, you know, thinking about things like uh, green energy and electric vehicle manufacturing, and then, of course, all of the existing uh, manufacturing and pharmaceutical sciences and things in the triangle in North Carolina is that is what the future of America economically looks like and how those people that are coming into these states vote and choose to align themselves politically is going to be the story for the next decade too. So yes, anomaly, but I think more so than, you know, D or R, the thing to look at are these jobs and these people mm -hmm. and how they choose to view these states. That's really interesting. Professor Bitzer? Yeah, I, I would completely agree with Stephen. I think for those of us that study Southern politics, Georgia and North Carolina are what we would call growth states. And there is a real key difference between the growth states, Virginia, Florida, Texas, versus the stagnant southern states of Mississippi and Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas. Uh, those states are moving more and more Republican, where the growth states are trending, typically tending to be much more competitive. And I think the dynamics of in-migration, but also the fact, as Stephen pointed out, generational dynamics are at play in this region and in, and in several states. And I think the urban-rural divide, as Georgia is well aware of, North Carolina is having that phenomenon. Nationally, that's playing out. I think both southern states, North Carolina and Georgia, are going to be microcosms, case studies, for what we're going to see potentially play out in 2024. And I'm going to try to just tether them a little because that's cute and fun. North Carolina and Georgia do share a border, if you didn't realize that. Not a whole heck of a lot of one, but they do share a border. And if you're in the western reaches of North Carolina, you're actually a heck of a lot closer to Georgia's state capital than you are your own state capital. North Carolina, the ninth largest state in the country by population, and Georgia is the eighth largest state uh, by population in the country. Oh, Georgia, by the way, uh, has an ongoing uh, criminal investigation process uh, going on because the former president, Donald Trump, was indicted, uh, of course, in Fulton County. Uh, this has to do with uh, election meddling. So I uh, want to turn to this with Stephen Fowler here on Due South as part of our initial purple ballot series, talking about North Carolina, talking about the South here in 2024. Uh, and a bit of tape before we get to you, back to you, Stephen. Fulton County District Attorney uh, giving an updated timeline on the election fraud case against former President Trump and others. I believe the trial will take many months, and I don't expect that we will conclude until the winter or the very early part of 2025. All right, that's Fonnie Willis speaking to the Washington Post. She's the Fulton County District Attorney prosecuting former President Donald Trump for election fraud. Here we are, January of 2024, uh, and she just mentioned 2025. Stephen, that's not anytime soon. That only makes things messier, doesn't it? Absolutely. And this isn't the only criminal case the former president is facing. And so it's a balancing act and juggling act of uh, legal deadlines and filings and rebuttals and, you know, counter filings and everything. And so it's 
almost as complicated as the presidential delegate allocation process in trying to keep track of it all. But Georgia, the case there, 19 people were indicted, including the former president. Many of them have taken plea deals and have pleaded guilty and won't go to trial. But still, there are multiple defendants ranging from kind of low-level people that were accused of harassing an election worker that led to death threats to the former president. And it's under Georgia's expansive racketeering law, which basically is more expansive than the federal racketeering law. And prosecutors allege that the effort to undo the 2020 election in Georgia is akin to a criminal conspiracy that violated multiple state laws and is in the same breath as criminal street gangs or the mob or other sort of organized crime enterprises. And at the top, they allege, is Donald Trump, who is currently running for president in Georgia and other states. And so there's a lot to balance with uh, the timeline of trying to get people before a jury, with the due process that people are given, with uh, filing objections and motions for this and motions for that, and, uh, yeah, again, balancing the calendar of everything. So um, one thing is that we might not see Donald Trump stand trial in Georgia until after the 2024 election. That's what his lawyers want. The other thing is that Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election are probably going to be dominating the headlines in Georgia and Arizona and Michigan and these other states that he narrowly lost and some that he narrowly won, like North Carolina, where... People are going to be reminded over and over again of what happened in the last presidential election leading up to this one. And that's probably going to have a big thumb on the scale of how some of these squishy voters vote. Hmm. Stephen, your reporting is taking you to Coffee County, Georgia. Tell us, please, where Coffee County is within Georgia and what happened there. So Georgia has 159 counties, second only to Texas. Coffee County is one of them, and not the only one named after breakfast foods, fun fact. Um, it's in <laughs> South Georgia, near Bacon County, conveniently enough, and mm -hmm. it's the yeah. site of one of the more pivotal pieces to this 2020 election indictment. Um, a group of Trump supporters and a uh, lawyer and uh, this forensic imaging group flew down to this rural county and spent time in the elections office copying everything they could get their hands on, election equipment, databases, things like that, because they thought they could prove that there was fraud in the 2020 election caused by Dominion Voting Systems, which is the vendor that runs Georgia's voting machines. And uh, it was under wraps for a while. It came out through an unrelated lawsuit trying to get rid of Georgia's voting machines. And it was discovered that Georgia's voting equipment was illegally copied and distributed to some people. And uh, there was also no fraud found with the machines, with the results. Georgia's results were counted three times. And so this conspiracy of copying election data, um, trying to manipulate results and things like that, is just one piece of the puzzle of this multifaceted indictment. Stephen Fowler is here on Due South, along with Michael Bitzer, Susan Roberts, and Lucille Sherman. This is our first installment of Purple Ballot, a series of shows and segments, as well as conversations that hopefully are going to better inform you about the landscape of elections, issues, and collective politics across North Carolina and the South here in 2024. And if you're just joining us, we're dusting off the vocal cobwebs. Due South is back after a bit of a break. 
Tune in, of course, weekdays at 10 a.m., and you can get caught up on episodes of Due South at our website, elections. Welcome back. It's Due South here on WUNC. We're trying to frame up the 2024 political landscape in North Carolina and also Georgia. Stephen Fowler uh, is on the line. He's covering elections this year and many political happenings for NPR. Also with us is Dr. Michael Bitzer, professor of politics and history at Catawba College. Dr. Susan Roberts, professor of political science at Davidson College, and Lucille Sherman. She is with Axios Raleigh. Now, in recent months, I've had the opportunity to sit down with North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, as well as North Carolina Senate leader Phil Berger, uh, Republican in the state Senate, to have wide-ranging conversations. But one of the things we talked about was the threat, the prospect of the consideration for political violence. So here's just a little clip from both Governor Cooper and Senate Leader Berger. On both sides, these representatives are looking toward a primary, and they want to be as far left or as far right as they can possibly be to protect themselves from primary opposition, which often precludes getting in and doing the hard work of finding compromise to move forward. When uh, a demonstration uh, breaks the law uh, and uh, those, uh, the, those demonstrators are not dealt with at that time, I think you encourage a repeat and probably an uh, expansion of uh, that sort of demonstration. So that, that concerns me. All right. Roy Cooper, Phil Berger. I want to hear from each of you panelists, and Lucille, I'm going to start right here with you. How much consideration or thought have you given to the possibility of political violence here in 2024? I'm going to be honest, Jeff. Until this moment, I haven't really thought a lot about it. Um, I appreciate the honesty. (laughs) But I think it's an important consideration and something that we sort of shouldn't be surprised about um, if it occurs. I think when I'm thinking about political violence— I feel like it could come up in terms of what happens with the presidential election. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, in North Carolina, I'm not really sure that it's a concern other than sort of the presidential election itself. One kind of interesting footnote that came out of 2020 was there was you know all this this talk about elections are tainted and votes were stolen and the, the, the big lie as it played out. But I remember and I think this is worth noting you know, almost four years later, I remember turning to a number of officials in North Carolina, number of Republicans and saying, hey, do you have any concerns with how the election played out here? And they all said, no, our elections are perfectly fine here in North Carolina, which was like almost worth chuckling at, except the stakes were so huge. Well, I mean, part of that is because Republicans dominated in North Carolina um, and have dominated in the past couple of elections. So, you know, Republicans in other states who were saying the election was stolen, um, we're saying that because Republicans also didn't perform well there, but Republicans performed well here. And I feel like that really sort of changed how things played out and yeah. it sort of changed the narrative at the top um, and on its way down. Professor Bitzer, there's, uh, I suppose, theoretical uh, issues, violence, intimidation that happens with elected officials. But there has also been harassment of poll officials uh, across the country. Uh, how do you think about this issue, if at all? And I'm, I'm not trying to drum this up just to be clear, but it is something clearly that I have given some thought to as we, we head into 2024. 
I think it's an important thing for not just you, but for your listeners to be thinking about. I think following the events of January 6, 2021, we cannot discount the notion of political violence, and particularly based on rhetoric that comes out of major candidates' mouths. And I think what we're going to have to contend with is breaking the norm of American politics to say, if I lose an election, well, I you know, should have gotten more votes. Maybe I needed to do a different kind of strategy, but I can see the election and we rally behind who was elected. I think in today's environment, what we are seeing are folks calling into question with no evidence, no facts whatsoever, questions about the legitimacy of our elections administration. And I think ultimately that does real damage to the notion of democratic republicanism in the fact that if Americans can't trust how we elect our leaders, what can we trust in our governing system? And I think, you know, the the, the issue of political violence, uh, I think, is is something we have to be cognizant and realistic could potentially happen if candidates stoke the flames of violence. In an effort to synthesize this uh, a little bit, I got an email last month from the Brennan Center for Justice at uh, New York University Law School. Uh, They published a report, The Good News About Democracy in 2023. That's the title of the report. Uh, Here's just a very brief synopsis. It says, between January 1st and mid-October of 2023, at least 23 states enacted 47 laws that expand access to voting. At least six states passed laws to protect election workers from harassment. At least two states passed campaign finance reforms. Stephen Fowler, as we think about uh, potential political violence or some concerns there and or bridging this, if, if you would like, I'll give you the uh, dealer's choice here. As we think about electoral access and um, th- this other huge factor in 2024, what changes uh, have been implemented or do you expect uh, to to take form here in Georgia? Well, we've seen a number of legal changes in Georgia to how the election system operates. After 2020, um, a grab bag of things that make elections better for voters and the officials that run them, things that make it harder, and things that just kind of uh, it's the equivalent to moving food around on your plate to make it look like you ate. Um, there are a lot of good, bad, and ugly things that have come with voting and voting access in the aftermath of 2020. A lot of things grounded in conspiracy that makes it harder for voters, plenty of things that make it harder for the elections officials. And, you know, speaking of political violence, you know, one thing that isn't as readily visible as, say, you know, the violence on January 6th or the harassment and death threats that officials have publicized is the number of elections workers and elections officials that have left and retired and quit because they can't do it anymore, don't want to deal with harassments. And, you know, in Georgia, most every major county in the state has a new elections director since 2020 because people have retired or moved on to more mundane careers where they don't get called names just for doing their job or have people post their addresses or phone numbers. And so political violence isn't necessarily just physical. We're losing a lot of trusted elections officials, people trusted by both parties. And I think uh, at a step above that, uh, at all levels of the ballot, there are fewer people running for office that aren't extreme 
because the people that are like, I have a policy vision for insert thing here. Uh, there's no stakes in doing it because you're just going to lose a primary to somebody who says, I believe the moon's actually made of cheese and I'm going <laughs> to be a pro moon cheese platform. And so it's it's in some ways it's a little discouraging, but I think in the realms of political violence and thinking about election changes and things, that's something that's an undercurrent in all of this. When we look at the 2024 election, you're going to have less experienced officials working in places, less guarded against a lot of the chaos and with a lot of law changes that may or may not make it easier to vote. Stephen Fowler is here on Due South, along with Michael Bitzer, Susan Roberts, and Lucille Sherman. Lucille, I'm going to give you a dealer's choice here. I just want to tick through some things that we haven't necessarily touched on, and then you can just pull at one of these threads, and we're going to go with it. The Council of State here in North Carolina, that's the governorship and nine other offices, all on the ballot. All 50 state Senate seats, all 120 state House seats on the ballot here in 2024. Super majorities are very much in play. That entails a lot. And the legislature can, uh, the state legislature, General Assembly, can go uh, really as far as they would like as it pertains to policy if they can, again, achieve those veto-proof majorities. But a lone state Supreme Court race in North Carolina, it cannot tip the balance of partisan power. At the federal level, no U.S. Senate race here in North Carolina. Interestingly, North Carolina's congressional delegation will change considerably across the next 12 months. That's because five of the 14 U.S. House representatives are retiring or running for other offices. Representatives Manning, Bishop, McHenry, Jackson, and Nickel are not uh, vying for another term at the U.S. House. Lucille, I gave you a few choices. What do, what do you want off the menu here? You know, my favorite thing is always to talk about the state legislature, I, as I think I you know, hoping, Jeff. I was hoping. Um, you know, it's interesting because we kind of know broadly in terms of congressional elections, in terms of state legislative elections, how things are going to shake out. You know, we know in the congressional races in North Carolina, there's a big chance that Republicans dominate most of our congressional seats. Yeah. And the same with state legislative seats. There's a big chance that Republicans hold a majority. The question is, of course, whether they obtain a supermajority, but they've already gotten so much done on their agenda. They've just really hammered stuff out in the last sort of nine months of having a supermajority um, that I don't even know that that's <laughs> a super big goal for them. Um, but in terms of legislative races, a couple things that I'm looking at are sort of more forward-looking, like beyond 2024 and beyond mm -hmm. 2025. And one of them is, can Democrats sort of seize these um, legislative seats that are in Wake County and Mecklenburg County suburbs? So seats that are sort of Republican-leaning but could go Democrat because these areas are so rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't really think they can do that this year. I've been wrong before. But those things, I think, will really tell us a lot about what's going to happen in 2026 and beyond. And these are rapidly growing areas. The Raleigh Metro, among the fastest growing areas in the country. It's up there with Austin, Texas and Las Vegas, Nevada. Charlotte, of course, uh, one of the largest cities in the South. It is growing quickly as well. And if you think about like the crescents, if you think about the suburbs, word you used, and of course, that's the best word, these areas around the metros, they have had really important districts, important uh, roles in deciding the power or helping to shape the contours of just how dominant Republicans are at the North Carolina uh, General Assembly. Uh, 
Are there any particular races, legislatively speaking, Lucille, that you are hoping or wanting to spend some time on? I'm throwing you on the spot here, but are there any that uh, to you are just like, oh, yeah, like your appetite's all about it? Yeah, I always am drawn towards the swingier state legislative seats. I feel like I tend to gravitate towards the Senate because there's less on the plate to watch in terms of races. So, yeah, Southern Wake County and even Northern Wake County um, with the state Senate district that sort of goes into Granville County, sort of the top and Mm -hmm. bottom of Wake County are two districts that I'll be watching really closely. Um, Republicans and Democrats could be really vying it out in those. Um, And how those go, I think, like I said, will tell us a lot about what might happen in 2026 and beyond. And then also sort of like some other districts are Wilmington, what will happen in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like watching sort of the Outer Banks Senate District, which was really competitive um, in the last election, sort of things like that. And then I'll keep an eye on Mecklenburg. Um, I think that like all of those districts are up for grabs by Democrats, but Republicans could still win them. Initial purple ballot episode here on Due South on WUNC. Lucille Sherman here in Studio We have just a moment or two remaining here uh, on Due South. I'm going to throw each of you on the spot with a little love, lots of respect, and ask you for a bold prediction for 2024. It could be big. It could be bold. It could, you know, maybe be something that you're going to consume most frequently at a service station as you're crisscrossing the state and covering politics. Um, It doesn't really matter. Just want to have a little fun here uh, on the way out. But a bold prediction, please. For 2024 politics in the American South. Stephen Fowler, something bold. My personal bold prediction is that I will come and consume Heavenly Buffaloes at least twice in 2024. I'm a big fan. And uh, my professional bold prediction is that it's probably going to be the person that has the most electoral college votes that wins the White House. I hope so. I really hope so. I see what you did there, Stephen. I really hope so. Uh, (laughs) Professor Bitzer, what do you got for us? Uh, I would probably go with, we will see again, probably record turnout uh, in this year's election, but we may not in North Carolina hit three quarters of registered voters. I think we'll hit over 70%, but if we hit 75% or exceed 75%, it's a whole new dynamic in North Carolina politics that no crystal ball can accurately reflect upon. I'm going to jump in here and give Lucille Sherman one more beat to think about her bold prediction. But you just triggered this for me, Professor Bitzer. The turnout was massive in 2020. Mm-hmm. 81% of registered Republicans in North Carolina, 75% mm-hmm. of registered Democrats. And because the turnout was so high, the already faulty polls were further, their their problems with were further exacerbated. Uh, so my bold prediction is polls are going to remain uh, tenuous at best. And my recommendation for the listener is when you look at polls here in 2024, make sure you are looking at an aggregation of polls whenever possible. There can be outliers. And unless you're really looking at the methodology of polls, you can put yourself uh, in a position that is is just probably not best. Polls are not predictive. Just friendly reminder. Please and thank you. Yeah, please and yes. thank you. Uh, Lucille Sherman, something bold for 2024. Well, first I'll say I don't think that's a really bold statement at all, Jeff. <laughs> uh, I I think that I want that to be a common thing that we all accept and know. Um, it's an important reminder, but 
hardly bold, I would say. So sorry to call you out. Fine. Uh, secondly, my bold prediction is going to sound a little bit like a cop out. Um, but I think we're going to be surprised by something. And I think that sort of speaks to what you were just saying about polls. Like, there's a lot of analysis about what could happen and what will happen. And a lot of surety among analysts, including myself, about, you know, what next year is going to look like. And I think that in some way, whether it's, you know, the presidential election, the gubernatorial race, whether it's state legislative races, like, we're going to be surprised in some way. Um, and that is one thing that get, gets me excited sort of about the next year. Lucille Sherman is a Jeff, report. I have one I'm, more. Oh, go, go, go right ahead. Go right ahead, Professor I Roberts. have one more bold prediction. Please. That is Joe Biden will not be the Democratic nominee for the president. Oh, that's bold. That's what I'm talking about. I would like to second that. <laughs> that oh, We've got a second. Stephen Fowler just made pretty good, like, big eyes on his end. I'm looking at him on a Zoom and he was like, y'all are nuts. Uh, you, he didn't actually well, say I would that. say then, then my other bold, bold prediction is that it won't be a Trump-Biden rematch on either side. Ooh. Ooh. See, Ooh, now sick. we're getting to it. Can we go unplugged here on Due South? Unhinged? Unplugged? I, I mean, <laughs> we'll think about it. Lucille Sherman is a reporter with Axios Raleigh. Susan Roberts, professor of political science at Davidson College. Michael Bitzer, professor of politics and history at Catawba College. And Stephen Fowler. Political reporter for NPR have been your guests here on Due South. Thanks, y'all, so much for the time and uh, the knowledge. Thanks, Jeff. Thank Thank you. you. We are precisely nine weeks from the March 5th primary here in North Carolina. We are curious to hear from you. What are your questions about 2024 and the political landscape? What races deserve more attention from us? And what questions can we try to answer or provide additional context on? Please send us an email, south at wunc.org. My name is Jeff Tabiri. We will talk to you again tomorrow.